Good morning, everybody. Okay, we are finally wrapping up our series on the great taboo where we have been studying about what the Bible has to say about sex. And so I want to conclude by at least saying thank you to you for your patience. I do hope that this study has been challenging to you and even has caused you to think and maybe even re-examine some thoughts and perspectives that you had. But I do know that because of the topic, there can be a certain level of discomfort or maybe awkwardness in it. And for many, I do know that this topic of sex touches or can touch on some of the most painful and sensitive areas of your life experiences. And I know because of that, it can be a challenge to make it from beginning to the end. But I want you to know we are now at the end, and I want to thank you for being a part of this conversation and study over these past five weeks. Now, this morning is going to be a in-conclusion kind of message. What I mean by that is it is a, in light of everything that we have looked at and studied over the last four weeks, what do we do with this in regards to life here in 2015? And in order to properly understand the in-conclusion, knowing what went before it is very important. So let me just say, if this is your first time with us this morning, you're going to be just fine in regards to understanding what I'll be saying today. But truly, it will, be, it will help you even more to understand where the in-conclusion came from. And in that regard, I would encourage anyone who may have missed a week or two or maybe all four to go back to the podcast and listen to the messages. And even if you've already heard all of them, I do not think it would be a bad idea because I talk so fast I'm throwing out so much information to listen to it again. But if you were holding in your hands a syllabus of this entire series, it would read like this. Week number one, introductory points and a, lo- and a look at God's creative intent and our biology. Week two would read everything that Jesus has to say about sex. Week three would read everything that the Old Testament has to say about sex. And week four would say everything that the Apostle Paul has to say about sex. And so if you've been here all four weeks, you have walked through the entirety of Scripture in regards to its teachings on sex and sexuality. So congratulations to you. And I've tried to provide in these four weeks context in regards to what cultural assumptions and perspectives were at work when we read the Bible, and I've tried to provide definition and meaning to important words related to our topic. And now as we begin, if you were to continue to read on that syllabus, it would say week number five, how do we apply this to our real lives in 2015? Now from the very beginning, it has been my attempt from the beginning to remove sex as an idol. And sex is an idol in our culture, but also, ironically, in the church. In the culture, the idol of sex, it claims too much. It promises more than it can deliver. It attempts to convince you that it is the end all of all things. If you can only live out the pleasures it provides, then you'll really be living the life. And it becomes an end unto itself. And it boasts of all sorts of promises fulfilled, But I would also contend that the church is just as guilty as the culture by making sex an idol, but on the opposite side of that coin, that the church has given it more power than it deserves. And in fact, the usual tone and attitude we take towards its power is that it's bad and evil and shameful and harmful and repulsive. And when we perceive that an idol has the power to harm us like we do with sex, then we keep our distance from it and we warn those who get too close to it, and we shame those who taste of it, and even its mention is taboo, and thus the title of our series, The Great Taboo. 
And the only way to keep sex from being an idol is to deny it the power of both claims. Listen, sex is not the end all of all things. And if you give your life to it, it will leave you, ironically, unfulfilled. And on the other hand, sex is not our enemy. It's not out to harm us. It is a part of God's created order. And then we should not elevate it then to places, either in tone or attitude or severity, that it does not rightfully belong. And this happens very unintentionally in ways, but it happens all the time. It's when we make sexual sins to really be the only sins that matter, or when we describe it as the worst kind of sins. I mean, gossip, everybody does that, but anything sexual. Or if we, in emphasis and tone, teach our children that the only thing that really matters to us by way of their character development is that they remain pure and virginal until marriage. And so we raise our kids, and they could be greedy and liars and self-centered and gossips and hateful and bitter, but we feel satisfied in the end if we can at least say they were virgins when we handed them off to their future spouses. And based on what we looked at in Scripture, I think it is fair to say that the authors, and I mean all of them, of Scripture don't allow sex to be the end all of all things either. That the Bible, in comparative size, says very little about sex. Jesus really only mentions it directly twice. And his overall attitude seems to be to de-emphasize sex and marriage and even relationships for the preeminence of the kingdom of God. And then when you flip over to Genesis and start to read the Old Testament, you see the Old Testament places some limits on male sexuality as it especially infringes on the economy and property rights of others. And then when you get to the New Testament over into Paul, you see that Paul, he'll talk about it more than anyone else, although in the totality of his writings, it really isn't a dominating theme there either. And it's always in reaction and response to what he sees in the church. And really only when what he sees in the church is mirroring the typical Roman culture and attitude at large, which we talked about at great length last week. And in the end, in spite of the most predominant tone of the church, based on just its mention in the Bible, how much airtime it gets, and especially from Jesus, who is the incarnation of God here on earth, you're going to be very hard-pressed to conclude that God is obsessed with sex. And the picture that we sometimes paint, especially for our kids in heaven, Jesus up in heaven crying, obsessively concerned with what you do with your genitals, is just a little difficult to pass through the pages of Scripture. The Bible just doesn't say that much about sex. And yet, think of all the convictions and opinions and beliefs that we have about sex. I mean, just think about all of our guttural reactions that we all have to almost any question and any topic. Very rarely do we not find ourselves in a place where we have no opinion or thought on the rightness or wrongness of just about anything sexual. And the question becomes for us, where does that come from? I mean, where do those responses come from? We so quickly adjudicate everyone's situation when it comes to anything sexual and we pass judgment as if we had the definitive word directly from God's mouth to our ear. And yet when we actually read the Bible, the very word of God, it says very little about it. And it proves oftentimes that our opinions are truly not from God's word, but rather from our own backgrounds, which we would expect, and of course that we have or our assumptions, or prejudices, or even those kind of repulsive responses, or even our own life experiences and life narratives, those are the things that oftentimes are fueling our thoughts and our opinions. And so we begin and ask questions like, can a Christian read the book Fifty Shades of Grey? The Bible doesn't say. Can a Christian go see the movie Fifty Shades of Grey? 
The answer is no, but because every reviewer said it was awful. But if you're asking me like what the Bible says in terms of book, chapter, and verse, I don't have one to give you. What about a rated R movie? Can Christians see those? Or what about even questions that come up within the context of marriage? We have questions about, is this sex act okay? Can we incorporate a variety of games and toys and novelties? And do you know what the Bible has to say about these questions? Not one thing. And everyone wants to ask, and especially teenagers, well, where's the line? Like, how far can you go? As if the Bible clearly defines those lines. So how far can a young couple go in their dating relationship? Did you know that there's actually, there's a movement within evangelical Christianity that advocates that a couple should not kiss or even hold hands until the day of their marriage? Did you know that? That's what Kelly and I did. No, that's not true. She wanted to kiss all the time. Is that in the Bible? No. Can they kiss? Like, what if it's like really kissing? What does the Bible have to say about second base? Can women wear yoga pants and leggings out in public? What about masturbation? There's a topic that's caused unrelenting guilt and shame on a myriad of individuals, and I know the statistics in regards to those who masturbate, both men and women, so let's get really real in our conversation. And besides, God has already told me which ones of you do, so good luck looking at me in the eyes on your way out. You know what the Bible says about masturbation? Nothing. Not one thing. And yet we are loaded for bear with our thoughts and opinions and assumptions about what, by the way, I could get a lot away with a lot at this church. So I don't think any other pastor could get away with any other church. I just want to say that. You know, we are loaded for bear with our thoughts, opinions, and assumptions about what is okay and what isn't okay. And I'm just simply pointing out that you can have all the thoughts, opinions, assumptions, and convictions you want, and you can even live by them faultlessly. But I just want to caution you, be careful to put that on Jesus as his own thoughts, assumptions, and opinions, because he never talked about these matters. Now, that doesn't leave us without an ethic. It doesn't leave us without guidance. And while I'm the first to admit even an attempt here in this series to bring about freedom from false guilt and crippling shame and the embrace of sex and sexuality as a part of God's good creation, I'm not advocating a libertine view of sex and sexuality that says, do whatever your body urges you to do. I will affirm again this morning, we are not at the mercy of our biological makeup. And just because your body has an urge or an inclination or a desire does not mean as a follower of Jesus or even as a human being that it is right and good. And I think there is a paradigm in which we can think deeply about these things, but it requires us to think deeply, to stop offering ridiculous black and white categories that do not belong to Scripture and to stop shaming everyone and anyone who gets too close to the tabooed idol of sex. We need much better conversations about sex with our children and our teenagers and even as adults with one another, as if somehow when you get to be an adult, this resolves all of our issues. To find forums, even in community at the Livingstones Church, that allows us to, on the one hand, affirm God's creation and creative intent, even with sex, and restoring the Hebraic perspective of the body, that when, G- when God got done creating the body, he stepped back and said, oh, it's very good. And upholding then a very serious theology of sexuality that also, on the other hand, includes the very power of sex as well as its distortion because of the fall. But in all of it, to hold it lightly enough to prevent sex from being the end all of all things and assigning to it power to steal from us joy and peace and even relationship with God. 
And so what happens is whenever we sit down, if you're serious about this, whenever you sit down with the Bible in your hands and read from Genesis to Revelation, with even the central question of what does it have to say about sex, what you will immediately do is enter into a theological conversation that has three considerations. Three considerations. One is called exegetical. And I know that's a fancy word. We've used it a couple times in this series. What it's simply trying to discover is when the original authors wrote this down, what did they mean? And when the original hearers of these letters, when they listened to it, what did it mean to them? That's exegetical, what it meant. The second category is hermeneutical. And I know that's another big word. Hermeneutical means what it means for us. How do you apply it? Here's what it meant then. Here's what it means for us today. That's hermeneutical. And then finally, the third category is pastoral, meaning how does it apply to this real person in a real place in real time? And you have to get all three of these right. And this does take work and wisdom and prayer and discernment. And there are challenges to each. Listen, I'm not trying to make the Bible so complicated that the average person can't find it accessible, but I'm also not going to deny the reality that it was written at least 2,000 years ago in a completely different context and in a completely different culture with different languages and customs and worldviews and assumptions about reality. And you must uncover those if you're going to properly apply what we are reading. And so if we were just to begin in the first category of exegesis, exegetically, it is important to understand that the reason why Leviticus says what it does is because it comes with the assumption that women are property and it's attempting to provide uniqueness among the Israelites in painting their enemies as sexually deviant. And that's why it reads as it reads. And it's important to know when Paul is addressing homosexuality in his letter to the Romans that we understand exegetically exactly what homosexuality looked like in the days of Paul. That when Jesus addresses sex in his Sermon on the Mount, exegetically it is very important to note that he is taking head on the Phariseeism of his day and their emphasis on keeping all of the rules and commands but seemingly pays no attention to the actual condition of their hearts. And unless you do the exegetical work to understand what the original authors would have meant and what the original hearers would have heard, you'll just be tempted to swing the Bible as a moral club battering people today with a biblical quote that in its original time and place has really nothing to do with the situation that you're now hammering away with. This is not an exact science. Very smart biblical scholars oftentimes disagree, often over questions of exegesis. But we must walk humbly in it and do our best to be faithful to God, to not assign to the Bible what was never intended from the beginning. But exegesis is just one part of our work. The second is hermeneutics, meaning, well, what do you do with that today? And this is an entirely different exercise. It is one thing to affirm that Paul seems to think sex belongs in the context of marriage. It is another to understand exegetically that he says that with the conviction that Jesus is going to return at any moment. And we could acknowledge exegetically that women in Paul's day arrived in marriage between the ages of 12 to 14, and sometimes getting married right out of puberty, and sometimes it seems before, and thus not having to commit a long period of time to abstinence and celibacy versus what we might see today in a professional young woman who's committed herself to her education and career and who's now in her mid-30s. That might be two entirely different situations in context, and what Paul might say to one can be difficult hermeneutically when we apply to another. And let me just say, we do this all the time, and we're better at it than we think. We're just unaware of it. We have often determined what Paul was saying exegetically when it comes to 2015 just doesn't apply. 
Let me give you an example. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul lays out a very clear argument as to why women should not be in church without their heads covered. And it's one of the most passionate arguments he makes in any of his letters. It's not unclear. He gives about seven different arguments, including God's original intent, and also because the angels are watching and they might get tripped up, women should have their heads covered. Wendy's going to heaven, and that's it. Exegetically, it is black and white. It is clear, and yet, except for Wendy, I don't see the rest of you women wearing any head coverings, and you're probably burning in hell for the rest of your lives. And why? Because what we have determined is exegetically, even though it's very clear, hermeneutically, we understand 2,000 years later in our time and place and culture, a woman not wearing a head covering means nothing. And if I might stretch us a little more to understand the difficulty of the text and its hermeneutical implications, when it comes to perhaps the greatest moral question of our recent history, slavery, Paul got it wrong. He just did. In fact, pro-slavery movements in the 1800s would use Paul's letters to justify slavery, and they were not wrong exegetically to do so. And while Paul was trying to create within the church a new community that broke down all those distinctions, including slave and free, he very much conceded that, at least in regards to the larger culture, slavery just is. And because of that reality, he gives very specific instructions of slaves and masters, which keeps them in their slavery. And what do you do with that? You say, 2,000 years later, slavery is wrong, period. And we will oppose it at every turn, whether in the church or in the world at large, even in spite of Paul's household codes. And so when we read that a 25-year-old pregnant Pakistani woman named Farzana Parveen was beaten to death with bricks by her father and her three brothers last year as an honor killing for her immorality and defiance to her family who betrothed her to a cousin who was in the family, but she went off and eloped with the man that she loved, we read that story and we're filled, rightfully so, with repulsion and disgust. It is estimated that 869 women were killed in Pakistan in honor killings last year. And our response is condemnation and repulsion. And it should be. Even though if you change the name, the time, and the location, what happened to Farzana Parveen is exactly what happened to an Israelite girl in whose family they could not produce evidence of her virginity if her now husband demanded. And do you know what we do? We condemn it and stand against it, even though it is clearly in Deuteronomy 22, verses 20 and 21. And this is what the hermeneutical task allows us to do. We understand what it is saying, but in regards to its application to 2015, we recognize, yeah, that doesn't work here. And I know this feels radical and controversial, mostly because we've not thought deeply about it enough to understand these issues or the fact that we really do do this all the time, but they are imperative if we are going to take seriously both our faith and the Bible. And hermeneutics is a challenge, and it requires us to search and reflect and pray deeply and walk in humility in light of our current situations. But it isn't just about exegesis and hermeneutics. It's also pastoral. It's about real people living real lives here before us. But they have a story. They have a soul. And they matter to God. And he's crazy in love with them. 
not as an issue, not as a test case, not as a, an example to make before others, but real people with real struggles and real brokenness. And this is what I love about the ministry of Jesus. And we even took a look at the story in the second week of our series. Remember that woman who's caught in adultery? Remember when they dragged her out to Jesus? What does he do? Do you remember his response? He protects her. He rescues her. He extends to her grace and mercy. He shows her the heart of his father directly to a woman who he probably would not have agreed with at all. Jesus is not for adultery. He makes that very clear in his teachings, yet here before him in this moment is a real person, not an issue, a person with a real soul that really mattered to God. And he could see through all of her brokenness, and who else knows what else is in her story, and he could see deep down that this woman is a daughter of God. And he wasn't going to let her be treated as some exegetical or hermeneutical test case, even though the exegesis was very clear. And there's no ambiguity in regards to what the Old Testament says. This woman should die. And hermeneutically, it's not even difficult to even apply this passage because stoning a a woman to death for adultery in first century Palestine would not violate any societal or cultural norms. But he dismisses both exegesis and hermeneutics to move to the pastoral because he loves her and he saves her. You could have the finest exegesis and the most impeccable hermeneutics, and you still must pass through the pastoral. This is a real person with a real heart and a real story, and God is crazy in love with them. And this is perhaps the most difficult. Years ago, like many years ago, I had a couple in the church here come and see me in the office, and they wanted to talk and get my counsel because the woman was riddled with insecurity and guilt. And the issue was she could only have sex with her husband with the help of pornography. She wanted to know if that was okay and what she should do. And I listened to her story and to her background, and it was riddled full of past trauma and abuse that kind of gave light to her present situation of she just couldn't get turned on physically by her own husband, but could with the help of pornography. It allowed them to be intimate. I looked at the husband, and he didn't have a problem with her looking at the pornography, go figure, typical dude. And I knew right then and there that what I have here is not a question of exegesis or hermeneutics. This is pastoral. If I tell this woman what she's doing is wrong, she'll move further into guilt and to shame, which ironically will not free her from her situation, but only keep her more entrenched and trapped there. It will mean that as a married couple, they will never be able to be intimate with one another. And as I played out in my mind the long-term consequences of their dilemma, and also asked God to give me the wisdom of Solomon, which I'm not sure he did, exegesis and hermeneutics made very little difference. Here was a real man and a woman who had real problems, real hurts, real baggage, and real pain. And I encouraged her to continue on a path of healing for all those past wounds and trauma and abuse and work toward the possibility of one day maybe being able to be intimate with her husband and not needing pornography. But until that day, to not live any longer in paralyzing guilt and shame and to, as much as she was able, to enjoy intimacy with her spouse. Now, you may have handled that situation completely different, and we could debate the merits of my counsel But I learned very quickly that all of our black and white categories, both exegetically and hermeneutically, don't work real well in the pastoral concerns of real life. In fact, when I see people flippantly offer their black and white arguments, even from pastors, I think you've either never had to pastor real people attempting to be faithful in our real time and place, or two, you have a very legalistic view of the Bible that will eventually lead to death, or three, you are completely unaware of your own brokenness. And all three of those things are completely unhelpful in the task of leading people here on earth towards Jesus who sees in them hearts and stories and lives that matter. Do you not believe that Jesus knows all about your upbringing? 
Do you not believe that he's compassionate towards the complexity and intricacies of how we were brought up and the experiences, even some of them painful, that might have been inflicted upon us even in the realm of sex and sexuality? And I cannot believe that Jesus' driving concern for us does not at least walk through pastoral considerations. And what this requires from us then is creative compassion. And compassion, is, it's not pity, nor is it moral softness. It is that feeling, understanding from inside another person's situation. Law typically only sees black and white. It is applied without prejudice and consideration, but creative compassion informs and provides sensitivity to which the moral law then can operate. That a girl may grow up hating the face that she sees in the mirror. And everything she has been bullied about and teased her entire life and growing up in has led her to believe that the face that she now sees in the mirror is the exact same face that's going to deprive her of love her entire life. And what creative compassion does is it allows her to see her life choices in light of her backstory, not to justify it or to excuse it, not to say that moral law doesn't apply, only to suggest our hearts should move pastorally as it does for Jesus. Or when two retired people, one widowed, the other divorced, discover that their lives are enriched and renewed by their love for one another, that in their maturity they're capable of a personal relationship at quite an exciting depth, and they even receive from each other a shared intimacy of sexual union that is profoundly loving, yet they both feel like they cannot get married. In the first place, they couldn't survive on the reduced Social Security benefits they would receive, but their adult children would passionately disapprove and it would so strain their relationships that it would risk severing them and that would be the final condition of their relationship with their own children in life. Now we could talk about this in black and white categories or we could even discuss this in light of you know, trust and faith that God will provide and seeking path of healing and reconciliation with adult children. But at the very least, creative compassion allows us to at least say, that these people, in light of their situation, should not be placed in the same category as some unchaste bedhoppers looking for as many one-night stands as they can find. Compassion is not the soft underbelly of morality. It is morality's creative edge. It is creative because it judges people in the light of their circumstances and because it tries to help them to change their circumstances. And it is creative because it stays with people in understanding and love even while they might reject good guidance of moral law. And so if you ask, well, what do we learn looking at the Bible as a whole? What I learned from Jesus is, in regards to sex and sexuality is that it isn't the most important thing. And even though we both have very different lives and callings, I consider him to be Lord and Master, and so I trust that the kingdom of God and my role in it is more important than even sex. And I'm grateful that he can affirm God's creative intent, and I'm free to enjoy the gift of sex. But he helps me to see that our hearts matter. More than just living my life following a list of do's and don'ts when it comes to sex, that the condition of my heart ought to reflect the condition and posture of being a follower of Jesus and the one who's received the Holy Spirit of God. And because of that, I have to acknowledge it might be difficult to define, but according to Jesus, lust is a real thing. And it is a real possibility. And as we said earlier, lust is not the same thing as a sexual thought or an inclination or an urge or a desire. That's how we've typically defined it. But those are natural within us. God created us with those. Sexual thoughts are not in view, but lust is. And while those things are different and even difficult to define, I'm not relieved of the task of ensuring that my heart is free from it 
And I also learned that Jesus takes seriously marriage and especially the violation of that covenant by either adultery or, he'll say, porneia, which is sexual morality or fornication. That adultery is a little easier, more clearly defined, and is a violation of the kingdom precisely because of its lack of love. That Jesus' driving ethic in the kingdom is love, and adultery goes against love by inflicting lies and betrayal and pain and devastation. And these sins are not appropriate for followers of Jesus. And while sexual morality or fornication is not clearly defined or illustrated, we can affirm that it must exist. And even if it were culturally conditioned, we must attend to our behavior asking, would this be viewed as fornication and sexual morality? And from Paul, we learn our bodies do matter, that we've been purchased by Christ, and so we now use them for the purposes of Christ. Your body has been engrafted to the body of Christ, and what you do with it matters. Your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And it is interconnected with the rest of your being, heart, soul, mind, and spirit. And this keeps us from two extremes, a libertine view of sex where anything goes because it's just the potty, what does it really matter? Or even the other extreme, an aesthetic view that denies the urges and impulses of the body. But because body matters and sex is a life-giving, life-bonding dynamic that sometimes we do have to accept by faith because that isn't our experience of it, we don't join our bodies with those that we considered wrong. And Paul used the illustration of our stepmoms and prostitutes from last week. And Paul even seems to be concerned that we not brag and boast about things that even the culture around us would think scandalous and thus bring shame to the name of Jesus. So let me just say, if your sexual behavior could land you on the Jerry Springer show, then you probably should consider what you're doing wrong. Like that's just a basic ethic for us. And what we learn from the Old Testament, we learn that God created us with sex and sexuality by design. We also learn that the fall has affected all of creation, including sex. So, sexual sins do exist. And distortions of sex exist. We learn from the Old Testament, incestuous relationships seem to be consistently wrong. And we learn that sex can also be celebrated and affirmed, as we see in the Song of Solomon. And I'm not sure why it is, but we all have gravitational pulls to the law. We want rules and commands. We want the do's and don'ts, because they bring clarity, and black and white categories, and I'm not even opposed to them when it comes to our children, like even Paul will say in Galatians 3, the law kind of served as a guardian and a taskmaster until we grew up in Christ, and so listen, I've got rules for my children, but I also recognize in the end, external obedience to a rule or command does nothing in regards to the heart, that's what Jesus says over and over again, but you ought not to base your life on my list of do's and don'ts, even as your pastor. It is a form of moral tyranny, and this isn't a cult. And I know many of you were hoping I would give you definitive lists of do's and don'ts. In fact, some of you are perceiving that if I'm not giving you specific do's and don'ts, I'm really not saying anything, but here's what I want you to know. When you gave your life to Jesus, do you know what he gave you in return? The Holy Spirit. And while there's still mystery in it for me, the Holy Spirit of God lives within you, and this is what Paul means when he says, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's what Jesus meant in John 14, verse 25 and 26, when he says, All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, listen to this, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. And then he'll say later in John 16, verse 12, I have much more to say to you, more than you can bear now, but when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. 
All that belongs to the Father is mine. This, that is why I said the Spirit will, see, will, re- will receive from me what he will make known to you. So if you come to me with a question about sex and sexuality that I simply do not have a clear biblical prohibition on passing through exegesis, hermeneutics, and pastoral concerns, my answer to you will be, you need to go seek the counsel of the Spirit that dwells within you. And if you truly seek and listen and discern, I think the Spirit will guide you in these matters. And if you will be sensitive in these matters, I think you will find that when you are unsettled, when you have this deep down gut sense that I don't think this is okay, or when it feels like you were being warned that this isn't the life that Jesus is calling you to, that will be from the Spirit. Now, it will be difficult to be sensitive to the promptings and leadings of the Spirit if your biology is in overdrive in regards to desires, inclinations, and urges, which is why it's important to not be at its whim, but to have open conversations with God, even about sex and sexuality, which you will not do if you believe sex is taboo. But if you can move past the taboo and actually have a conversation with God about your sex and sexuality, I think the guidance of the Holy Spirit will find for you answers. And let me also just say, by way of caution, what he says to you, he might not be saying to someone else, so be careful not to place that on them. And in the end, it means we become mature and take on for ourselves personal responsibility. And when, you ask, when you're asking the question, is this okay to do, even in the context of marriage, my first advice would be, Never violate your own conscience. And this is what Paul's point is in Romans chapter 14, which I'm going to come to at greater length in just a moment. But at least in verse 23 of Romans 14, he says, But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. So let me say this to you. If you do not think you should read Fifty Shades of Grey, then you should not read Fifty Shades of Grey. If you don't think you should wear yoga pants in public, then you shouldn't wear yoga pants in public. Or whatever is on your list of things that are from conviction, you should feel free to not participate in, and I'll support your conviction all day long. And in your marriage, if your spouse is asking you to do something that you have a conviction against, do not violate your conviction. But I would say allow yourself to be challenged in regards to the source of that conviction. Where did it come from? Why do you have it? Is it a subconscious message you picked up from your family that really isn't anywhere in Scripture or even inappropriate in your life in Christ? It's okay and, in fact, healthy to be challenged in our convictions. And for the sake of some of your spouses, it is encouraging and hopeful for you to rethink some convictions. But in the end, if it is a conviction, don't violate it. And if you are a spouse of someone with a line of conviction that is to the right of yours, honor them in that conviction. It is a display of your love and concern for them. And what would that say about you that you would push your spouse to go against their own moral convictions? Second, you should ask, is there a biblical prohibition on the act in question? Meaning, if you want to try this or experiment with that or be more adventurous by introducing and you could fill in the blank and you are curious if it's okay or not, after questions of conviction and conscience, I would ask you, does the Bible prohibit it specifically? And as we saw in regards to Scripture, the Bible has very little in regards to prohibition. So, apart from conviction or direct prohibition, if you want to fly your freak flag, go ahead and get your freak flag on. That's a Facebook status, I think. This is actually, there's actually a passage in Paul that I think is perfect for this conversation. I'm going to close with this. Now, it's not about sex, but I think the principle behind it is very applicable to sex. In the church in Rome, 
It's over people's convictions concerning certain foods and festival, religious festivals and participations. Some of the Roman Christians grew up in homes where all their lives they were taught that eating meat that was sacrificed to an idol was wrong. So picture that. Your entire life you've grown up believing, if I eat that, it's a sin. Like, that's wrong. Could you imagine that? I mean, how that's so closely tied to your conscience. Now, in the same way, you can think of all sorts of things sexual and how, yeah, that's how we grew up. That's, I mean, that's tied to our conscience. And those who thought they couldn't eat meat sacrificed to idols, they judged anyone else who did. And on the other side were people in the church who didn't think that there was anything wrong with eating meat sacrificed to an idol, and they looked down on and were arrogant towards those who they thought were trapped in such thoughts. So Paul addressed the issue, but the principle of his address are perfect for our topic as well. It's in Romans 14, verse 1, it says this, Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. What disputable matters is, means is, like, we got nothing in the Bible. Like, this is just, we got nothing. This is a disputable matter. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats anything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. You hear what's happening here? Like, those who thought, ooh, we're free, we're free. They were looking down on and holding, they are arrogant towards those who would not. But on the other hand, the one who does not eat any, everything must not judge the one who does. Meaning if for your conscience you can't do that, you can't judge your brother or sister who thinks it's okay. It says, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Each of them should be, uh, whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the living and the dead. You then, why do you judge your brother and sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. And then he wraps up this conversation in verse 22 and 23. He says, so whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Isn't that amazing? You can just you can keep it to yourself. You don't even have to post it on Facebook. Like no one else needs to know. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith and everything that does not come from faith is sin. And Paul's point is simple. If you draw the sexual fence of your life here, don't judge your brother or sister who draws it in a different place. And if you draw the sexual fence of your life here, don't look down on with arrogance your brother or sister who draws it differently than you. And whatever you believe about these things, you get to keep between you and God. What that means is, is what Kelly and I have agreed to is in our marriage that's okay is none of your business. I'm not subject to your judgment, nor am I to look down on you should you do things differently. And the same is true of you. What you have agreed to is frankly none of my business. Let me close by advocating for the pursuit of healing. What I have not spent a lot of time dealing with is the reality that while sex and sexuality was God's design and a part of his good created order, the truth is, if we're all honest, sex and this whole area could be one of our greatest pain, disappointment, conflict, and suffering. 
And even though I have spoken about our biology being wired to be sexual and to respond to certain stimuli, the truth is for many, often because of life experience, sex isn't pleasurable or desired at all. And this has been an area of struggle, guilt, concern, and pain, even in the context of marriage. So if you have the gift of celibacy, then like the Apostle Paul, we honor that. But if there is a lack of pleasure in pursuit of sex because of other issues, let me encourage you to pursue healing. That healing might be psychological, meaning trying to overcome past trauma and pain that's carried forward into your present sexuality. Or maybe that healing might be biological, meaning seeking a medical doctor or therapist to investigate what ought to be normal sexual responses that might be absent for you. To do so for your own sake, but especially for the sake of your spouse. And let me encourage you to step into the vulnerability of communication in this area and have honest and frank conversations about your needs, your desires, and your wants. This is what I know from 18 years of pastoring at the Living Stones Church. There is a world of hidden resentment, frustration, rejection, and pain that circles most marriages. And I want to encourage you to not give up on the pursuit of having the kind of sex life and intimacy that was a part of God's design and for it to be life-giving and truly covenant-bonding experience. That even in this, we might enjoy the gift that God intended to be and for it to be just one small piece of our greater whole, but a piece that is important and intended to be received with joy and thanksgiving. So may God give you wisdom as you apply these things in your own life, no matter what relational status you may find yourself in. Amen. Let's pray together. God, we do lift up your word, and we 